Attention Northwest Arkansas businesses and talent seekers. Introducing Onboard NWA.com, your hyperlocal job board crafted for our unique community. Struggling to find the perfect match for your job openings? Onboard NWA simplifies the hiring process, connecting you with the region's top talent through tailored talent matching solutions. Whether you're an employer seeking expertise or a professional looking for your next opportunity, Onboard NWA is here for you. Discover more at onboardnwa.com and let's build the future of Northwest Arkansas together. Hello, Northwest Arkansas. Randy here, bringing you a quick word from our sponsor, Signature Bank of Arkansas. Since 2005, Signature Bank has been all about empowering our community with local ownership and top-notch banking services. Signature Bank's roots run deep with assets over a billion dollars, and they're right here in your backyard with branches in Bentonville, Rogers, Springdale, Fayetteville, and now including Harrison and Jonesboro. With a growing family of more than 200 teammates, they're ready to serve you with the warmth only a true community bank can offer. And they've got Banco C, the first bilingual bank in Arkansas, to ensure that banking is for everyone. So give Signature Bank a call at 479-684-3700 or visit Signature.Bank online. Mention you heard about them on the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast for that personal touch. Signature Bank of Arkansas, big on assets, local at heart, and a proud member of the FDIC and an equal housing lender. It's time for another episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas, the podcast covering the intersection of business, culture, entrepreneurship, and life in general here in the Ozarks. Whether you are considering a move to this area or trying to learn more about the place you call home, we've got something special for you. Here's our host, Randy Wilburn. Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and I'm excited to be with you today. You know, since I've been here in Northwest Arkansas, one of the things that I have recognized is the fact that Northwest Arkansas has its own ecosystem from an an economic standpoint. And a lot of that is obviously due to Walmart, J.B. Hunt, and Tyson, as we like to call them, the big three in this area. And they certainly create an economic environment, if you will, due to their success due to the way that they serve this nation in so many different forms and capacities. But I wanted to get a better understanding of really the underpinnings of this economy here in Northwest Arkansas, as well as how it relates to the bigger picture when it comes to the economy of our country in the United States of America. And so 
I connected with uh, Meredith Lowry, who you will remember was on an episode of this podcast a while back. And she is a, an attorney at Wright Lindsay Jennings. And she's a patent attorney, really good one, by the way. So if you do need a patent attorney, you need to check, take a look at Meredith and, and reach out to her. Tell her I sent you. I'll, I'll put her a link to her email address in the show notes for this episode. But she introduced me to my next guest. And my next guest is Mervyn Jabarej. And Mervyn is an economist at the University of Arkansas. And I, he was kind enough once Meredith introduced us to connect with me and to agree to come on the podcast to talk about some things that I, I just had questions about. And, and also, I, I just wanted to introduce him to my audience, to the I Am North West Arkansas tribe of folks that are here, and, and also to give you some perspective about things from an economic standpoint. And so without further ado, Mervyn Jabarij, this is welcome to the I Am North West Arkansas podcast. Well, thank you for having me on here. Look forward to the conversation. <laughs> well, good. We're glad to have you for sure. I would love for you just to give our folks just a brief background. And as we like to call it here on the podcast, your superhero origin story. But I'd, I'd love for you to kind of give us the cliff note version of that. And, you know, how did you end up here in Northwest Arkansas? Why did you become an economist? I, I'm sure you didn't at five years of age, didn't think that that's what I wanted to be, but something thrust you into that role. And and economists do a lot of different things for a lot of different reasons. And so I'd be curious to understand why you are where you are right now. Yeah. Like you mentioned, nobody really wakes up thinking that, you know, <laughs> is born thinking they're going to be an economist. I really don't know anybody that grew up that way. And, you know, I think I came to Northwest Arkansas, obviously, to go to school here at the University of Arkansas. When I started out, I was an international relations major, and I had some interest in policy and how it affects people from, you know, somewhere around my teenage years, interested in various social issues. So I was interested in looking for some tools that would help me do that more professionally. And I didn't know what that was going to be necessarily, which I guess is one of the good things about a broad-based liberal arts education is you're exposed to a lot of different things. And one of those things that I was exposed to was a bunch of econ classes. And as I took the introductory econ classes, I realized that maybe this particular subject has a lot of the tools that I'm interested in or find useful to kind of work in the policy arena and work on providing good access to data and information so people make better decisions about various things that affect us on a daily basis. So, you know, that's really how I came into studying and working in the field of economics. I haven't regretted it one day since. So, you know, I mean, I would, it's hard for me to say that everybody should study economics. I mean, everybody should study some form of economics, at least a basic version of it. But it's very useful to understanding um, sort of a broad overview of the world. But how I came into it is certainly from a different lens. And I found that it was one of the tools that made most sense to me. Okay. Yeah, no, I love that. I got, I obviously took economics and high school and I, maybe I dabbled a little bit in junior high, but I really got exposed to it by a professor at when I went to Howard and I took econ. I took econ one and two, and then I, I ended up taking, it was a variation on understanding the differences between macro and microeconomics and how the, you know, the, the differences between the two and, and the focus of it. And so I didn't go beyond that because I just, I mean, I, I enjoyed it, but it didn't, really wet my whistle the way that it did for you. And so I, I think that, but I, I'm thankful that I did because it gave me a perspective of just understanding things that are bantied about and, and shared on a regular basis, whether through the news cycle or just in, in the papers and all that when it comes to GDP and 
you know, understanding the liquidity of, of things in, in every country and how, you know, one currency might affect another and all of that. And so I really, I'd love for you just to kind of give in a really broad brush strokes the importance of macroeconomics and how it plays into, you know, even how we just put food on our table on a regular basis. And I know that's asking a lot, but I know that you've probably synthesized this conversation down to its bare essence. But for those of us that did not have the privilege of taking a, an economics class in school, what would you say to them if you were giving them a quick introduction on economics and the importance of it? So uh, there's no way I can do any justice to this uh, over a short <laughs> period of time. I think the best advice I could give somebody would be to say that there are plenty of online resources that teach economics for free. Sure. And it's not a huge time commitment, honestly. And I think it's very much worth trying to spend a couple of hours or a few hours over a certain period of time to understand sort of the basic concepts behind economics. And so when you are watching the news or reading something in a newspaper or a magazine article or something, and it's talking about economic concepts, which, you know, affects just about every aspect of our life, you will have an understanding of how some of these things are related to each other. So, you know, one of the key things that I think I try to convey in economics to people is that everybody's spending is related to each other. So my spending is your income, your income and your spending makes my income. So I think, you know, we think of ourselves as individuals spending money in this amorphous marketplace without sort of broader understanding of what then happens with money that you spend. And so, you know, particularly in times like this, when you have a recession, people, you know, pull back, they want to save money and look after their own household finances. And that's exactly the correct thing to do for your own household, except if all of us did that, that's how we end up in a recession because all <laughs> of us pull back and stop spending money. And so I think one of the key insights, obviously, is that people, you know, my spending is indeed your income and it might be your particular income, but it's someone's income out there and then them going out and using my spending as their income, is spending that money in the economy that somehow is ending up to be my income as well. So in that sense, we're all sort of related to each other yeah. economically. And so you know, it's one of those things where if everybody isn't doing well, we're not all going to be doing well. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons just to bring it home in terms of where we are right now in the midst of this, as we're recording this, it's July 21st, 2020. And there we're, we are still in the midst of the pandemic, the COVID-19. And we got a stimulus package a couple of months ago that was supposed to create a love a buffer the experiences of the actual the economic blowback that we've experienced through having to shut the economy down we got this money from the federal government and initially it was a $1200 per individual and depending on how many people you have in your household you get another $1200 for that so it keeps adding up depending on the situation but and then i think it's different for minors but the bottom line is we got this extra money and it was supposed to help stimulate the economy and I guess the long and short of it was the bet that Congress was making was that people would actually use that money and spend it and not put it in the bank and save it. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think, you know, people talk about the stimulus and there are arguments you can make about whether or not the government should be sending out $2,400 to a very large section of the economy. But I think in part, they did that as an emergency measure just because it is one of the fastest ways that the government can get you money. And I think there were other aspects. I think the $1,200 gets a lot of attention, 
but I don't actually view the $1,200 as the central piece of the CARES Act stimulus. I think the central piece of the CARES Act stimulus bill were the PPP loans that came out from it, a variety of other loans that were made out to larger businesses, you know, bailed out the entire airline industry at the time anyway. And also importantly, it was the extension of unemployment benefits to a much larger group of people than traditionally get unemployment benefits. For example, you know, Uber drivers and Lyft drivers do not qualify for unemployment benefits because they're independent contractors. There are plenty of independent contractors like that, you know, graphics artists and marketing people that work as independent contractors that don't traditionally qualify for unemployment benefits that might have all lost, you know, portions of employment or a large part of their employment. If you think about nail salons and hairdressers, a lot of them are independent contractors at the salon. And since salons were closed, none of those people would have qualified for unemployment benefits at the time had the CARES Act not expanded unemployment benefits to them. So that, to me, was a much bigger portion of the stimulus that, you know, there were initial hiccups of trying to get the system up and running. It took way too long to get the money out to people, but the, and the money finally went out to people, that was the important stimulus and the additional $600, which unfortunately expires at the end of this week, sorry, at the end of this month for unemployment benefits. Those were parts of stimulus, I think, that were particularly important. I think the $1,200 gets a lot of press because it's a large chunk of money that went out to a lot of people, but it was, you know, kind of a stopgap catch-all measure to kind of tide you over before you sort of got the unemployment benefits and things, other measures that were put in. So, you know, if we're grading just the CARES Act piece of it, you know, I would say that the federal government probably got a solid B. Their response to this particular recession was a lot stronger than previous recessions. The response to this recession was better than what they did in 2008 and 2009 in response to that recession. But it's important to remember that I think everybody assumed that we would be past this pandemic or how much the disease rate is increasing by this point. But unfortunately, we have not done the other side of this, which is contact tracing and testing in enough capacity across this country, which means that we're going to have to go around and spend a lot more money to bail out the economy again. And we're going to have to keep doing that until we solve the disease spread issue, because a lot of other countries around the world also spent money on a stimulus. They spent a lot of money on contact tracing and testing. And so they've gotten control of you know how fast the disease is spreading. So they're able to open up their economy a lot more than we are here in the United States. And so they don't need as much uh, stimulus to kind of support the economy. We will continue, even if we had an ideal amount of contact tracing and testing, we're still going to need some amount of stimulus to keep going through the end of the year before we get a vaccine, so on and so forth. But it's not going to be nearly as expensive as it's going to have to be because we have no control of the disease in large parts of our country so far. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest challenge and that's the unknown. And it's the fact that, you know, for a lot of us, we thought, well, through the dog days of summer, we were going to be in that lull period before the second wave of the pandemic, as Dr. Fauci and so many others have said would happen. But we're still in the first wave because of a lot of decision making that has taken place. And I I don't get into politics on this podcast for the most part. I, I really don't go down that road because nothing good ever comes of it. And I just the bottom line is we're kind of all in this together and we've got to figure out a way to try to solve this problem. Yeah. And, so. you know, I, I certainly think there's things we can definitely learn from other countries that have succeeded in 
and there are things that we need to do. You know, there's a long time before this pandemic is going to be past us and we can't just keep, you know, going along the way that we are right now. Yeah. Now, in your estimation, do you think that fundamentally, are you kind of seeing or do you think that there will be fundamental changes to things that we will just never go back to doing like we did in the past pre-pandemic? So we'll have this whole, man, remember when? So all these pre-pandemic things we used to do versus how we do things post-pandemic. Like I know a lot of people are concerned that we're going to modify our travel habits and the way that we travel. And the fact that I can do a lot of what I needed to, I used to do in person with a client, I can do just like we're doing right now. I mean, do you see that having a significant impact in the way that we do business in the future? I think it has a significant short-term impact. I'm not completely convinced that it has a long-term impact. I think there are a lot of people that you know think that just because we were working from home and doing it somewhat effectively at this point, we will be comfortable doing this you know, forever for the future. And I think if we look at several companies that have tried this at various points, large companies, IBM had this huge telecommuting experiment that they did for several years and it just did not work for them eventually. They came, they brought everybody back to their offices. Yahoo did this as well a while back and then brought everybody back to their offices. So, you know, I think we're doing this as a response because it's an emergency and we can't congregate in uh, public spaces like we used to. And I think it's going to be a while before we'll be safe to do that again. So I think by the time it's safe to do that again, a lot more people will be interested in coming back and congregating in public spaces again and doing the things as close to normal as they were. So, you know, if there are some changes, they'll be minor. I don't expect holds, you know, wholesale changes to how we operate our economy based on what's going on from this pandemic. And I think just because this pandemic is going to take a long time to run, it might seem like we're doing something that's a new normal, but I think once we're past it, we will probably go back to offices in large numbers and we'll probably travel again. Because, you know, just about everything we're doing right now, all of this technology that we're using was built and available and people didn't really use it. Right. Um, and so th <laughs> there is value in in-person interactions, in-person offices and the kind of collaboration that you get from doing those types of activities and doing it a certain way in person, which just is not replicable yet online. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And as you speak about just this whole new wave of doing things online, pretty much everything that I'm using right now, or possibly that you're using is out of stock in every supplier, every company out there, because, you know, it went from, they went from having a surplus of these items to having none of them because everybody's, you know, made a run on digital cameras at home so that they can do these live streams. Uh, they've upgraded some of their sound equipment and all that just to improve upon the experience overall. And, and that, that's quite interesting because that actually drives certain sectors of the industry too. So it's interesting to see how this is all playing out. I had another question for you, and it's something that I've, I've constantly been thinking about. And I don't know as an economist, if you guys look at it like industrialized nations, went from one nation to the next, but look at their effective rate of savings. So like one of the big conversations that happened when the pandemic hit was that here in America, I think the average American basically has about $400 to their name in savings, like 70%, like have very little savings from that perspective. And so because of that, any incidents like what we're experiencing with the COVID-19 pandemic is going to have an unfortunate effect on individuals in their households. And I, I was curious to know, do you guys ever compare other countries as far as that's concerned with their saving habits to see 
Because I mean, I, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, it's just a kind of a one-to-one thing. I mean, if you have a country with a higher rate of savings, individuals' household savings, that then their w- ability to weather the storm longer is really the only benefit of that versus a country like the U.S. where 360 plus million people and we effectively, 70% of our population basically has $400. That's the buffer between us and falling off a cliff, if you will. And I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are on that. So I'll say two things. First, you know, I've certainly heard that $400 number bandied about. And I think the survey that it came off asked a different question. It said, if you had a $400 emergency, would you or could you pay for it without borrowing? And that doesn't imply that people don't have $400. It just means that they may not be willing to tap their savings to spend four or $500 emergency. And so it's, you know, nonetheless, we have one of the lowest person saving rates in the developed world. Okay. And, you know, that some of that is cultural. Some of that is just the nature of our economy. And it's, it's not anything that we can change in the short run. Obviously, the personal saving rates are through the roof right now because a bunch of people got extra money either from the stimulus or from the $600 unemployment benefits boost. So, you know, I don't generally pay a whole lot of attention to this, but it's just one of those features of the global economy where we save a whole lot less money, other countries save a lot more money. Mm -hmm. But the benefits to all of that is that it also allows us to borrow a lot more money to fund various activities that the federal government currently is spending money on. You know, we just, without thinking twice about it, really spent $2.5 trillion in the first CARES Act to stimulate the economy, almost every cent of that, if it, all of it did get spent, you know, a large part of it is loans. So this money that will come back was borrowed in its entirety. So, you know, there are certain advantages to having this large capacity to borrow money. And then a large part of it does come from the fact that there are extra savings in other parts of the world than there are here. And so when other people have more savings and we have to borrow money. It's a great market. They want somewhere to put their money. We are offering somewhere uh, <laughs> to put their money for an interest rate. So, you know, that, that market exists for a reason. And it's right. so far worked out in our advantage. I mean, we're not paying, you know, the debt and deficit might sound like a really large number. And it is, it is a truly large number. It's, uh, but nonetheless, you know, we're not paying a lot of interest on that debt right now. In the past, we have paid a lot of interest on that debt. In the late 80s, early 90s, we paid a lot more interest on debt, which is when it made a lot more sense to try to control the amount of debt that we had so that we paid less interest. But today, we're really not paying hardly anything on the debt, at least compared historically uh, to what we paid to service our debt. So, And with 10-year treasuries being less than a percent right now, it makes no sense to talk about uh, saving either individually or as a federal government right now, because there's plenty of money available at very cheap interest yeah. uh, to spend right now. But, you know, should people try to build savings accounts? Absolutely. Will this pandemic be the opportunity to do it? I don't think so, because again, Congress spent a lot of money initially, but now they're hesitating again. So people are going to draw down their savings if Congress does not come through with the CARES Act within a week or two right now. Yeah, no. And I I think everybody is waiting with bated breath to see what happens next. So there's a direction I want to take this conversation. But before I do that, I want to ask you a simple question. It just came to my mind now. As an economist, what keeps you up at night as you look at things, right? Because I mean, you know, I I know, I mean, you you are a, a learned and studied individual. I mean, you this is what you do for a living. Clearly, there are things that you see and they have to be concerning and and without scaring the hell out of my audience. I'd be curious to know what keeps you up at night from 
from an economic standpoint that you have concerns about? I think in the current uh, crisis is keeping me up at night is the lack of small business support. I think you had the uh, Paycheck Protection Act, the PPP loans that were provided to variety of businesses, both large and small. But the terms of the loans weren't actually very favorable to smaller businesses, particularly in the leisure and hospitality industry, where you know you may not be able to spend 75% of the loan amount on payroll. And so eventually the federal government backed off some of that requirement and made it 60% and not 75%, but they did it at the very tail end of when the money was available or when it needed to be spent by. So I think, you know, there are, you know, mid-sized and larger businesses got enough money to survive this pandemic, but I'm worried about the very small businesses, uh, you know, the one, two-person businesses, the less than five employees type businesses. And I'm very worried about you know, businesses in the leisure and hospitality industry, which are going to continue to suffer. So I think for a while longer, it's going to, people are going to feel unsafe about eating at restaurants, crowding in independent music venues, listening to concerts, you know, traveling uh, to tourist destinations, all of these types of activities. So much in the same way that we had to bail out the airline industry and the CARES Act, we're going to have to bail out a lot of restaurants. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about your Olive Gardens and Red Lobsters. We're talking about your smaller independent restaurants that can't survive in this climate. And we don't want them to, you know, try to be, uh, we don't want to force them into surviving and getting sick at the same time. So I think you've seen around here in North Australia and around the country as a whole too, uh, restaurants open and then temporarily close as their employees get sick. And that's just, you know, that's just no way to run a business. You can't, first of all, you can't, Run a profitable business at you know thirty percent of your capacity and fifty percent of your capacity, and then if you're having to close and reopen and close and reopen, that's really going to kill whatever business margins you had. And these are not uh, businesses with you know big margins. So on a good day, a restaurant business is a hard business to be in. Uh, this is a terrible time. So I think we really have to have a national conversation that these the quality of life things that make life worth living. We like going out to restaurants and eating with our friends. Do we want to have these types of restaurants once this pandemic is over? I think everybody would say yes. If that's true, then we need to spend money to help them out through this. You know, and uh, just say it, that we need to bail them out. There's just no way around this right now. Yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. I've had some friends locally here. I'm thinking of Woodstone. Uh, Jeremy Gothrop, the owner of Woodstone, decided to just close up shop. I mean, he has since opened his kitchen up and, ma- and put it out and made it available to a couple of local organizations that are trying to feed food insecure people. So there are a lot of things that are happening, but it still doesn't put money on his plate or for the number of people that he employed. I think he at one time employed like 75 people. That's just one restaurant. So yeah. I mean, these, are, these are livelihoods. I mean, these are families mm-hmm. that are affected when he had to go from 75 or whatever the actual number was to zero. And so you multiply that by the number of restaurants out there that are like a Woodstone or many others that can't really survive on takeout only. And so that's the real challenge. And you're absolutely right. I'm actually, a, I would be in favor of a, in your word, a bailout for restaurants just because of how many people are employed. It's like one out of 10 people work in the service industry. It might, it might even be two out of 10. I don't know. So, but that's, that's a large group of folks. Yeah. You know, and I think there's just, 
even if the government lifted all regulations on capacity tomorrow and said, okay, you just, you, you can fill as many people as you want. People are not going to go. Yeah. You know, there are clearly going to be some people that will go and crowd into bars and stuff. And we've all seen pictures of that floating around on social media, but there's, it's not ending well for a lot of they're people. Not ending, it's not ending well for them. You know, those bars and restaurants end up closing eventually. And that's just one venue, right? All the other venues are still empty. You know, I think, people are still not going to go even if you remove the capacity at restaurants. So people will not dine in and the more unsafe they feel, the less likely they are to go in, you know? So we can't get the economy back to even 80% capacity until we get some handle on reducing the number of cases, which is why, you know, we're going to have to keep spending lots of money because we're not spending money on the component that we need to spend money on, which is, testing and tracing capacity. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard you, you've, you've mentioned that. I mean, that's, that is your main talking point, which is so important, testing and tracing, because without those two things, we're never going to get ahead of this pandemic. I've heard you mention it on several other videos and you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's critically important that we do that and we're, we're nowhere near where we need to be on the testing or on the tracing side of it. And other nations, other industrialized nations that have kind of gotten a control of this testing and tracing have been one of the areas that they have significantly invested in to make it happen. So, yeah. so. I mean, it's, it's going to require a census level effort to do that properly. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think we should, it's going to yeah. be cheaper in the long run. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Well, I don't want to be Debbie Downer, so I, I certainly want to encourage folks. I'd be curious to know, and we're going to flip it over to Northwest Arkansas now. Are you seeing any glimmers of hope? here in Northwest Arkansas. I mean, I know for a a lot, during a lot of phases of, and I look back, you know, to look at the unemployment rate, even back into like 11, 2011, 2012, when people were still trying to come out of it in other parts of the country, I relocated here from Boston. We had a significant downturn and a significant upturn in unemployment during the recession. And I know that it didn't affect Northwest Arkansas the same way it affected a lot of other places. Is that just totally attributed to the fact that we have J.B. Hunt, Walmart, and Tyson right in our backyard. And, and they're not just any companies. I mean, we have the second largest meat producer in the world and one of the largest businesses in the world. And so how much of that is something that as a Northwest Arkansas or an Ozarker, can we rely on because of the strength of those companies? Yeah. You know, I think what it does is it stabilizes our employment rates during downturns. It depends on the kind of downturn too, but most downturns don't, you know, traditionally affect those businesses very heavily because at the end of the day, people still go to grocery stores, people still buy meat, even if they're switching kind of what type of meat they're buying. And, you know, as their incomes go down, but they're generally still buying meat and, you know, things still need to be shipped around the country. Now, nonetheless, all of these companies do suffer downturns when there is a recession. This you know, pandemic might be a little different in that sense that, you know, people went to grocery stores a lot more than they would as they're eating at home and more than they're eating outside. So that's slightly different in that sense. And so it doesn't mean that we don't have, you know, we're, we have the highest unemployment rate here in Northwest Arkansas that we've ever seen in our recorded history at this point. And so it's not that we're immune to this. It's just that we have a lower unemployment rate than the rest of the state. We have a lower unemployment rate than the rest of the nation, but that doesn't mean that it isn't the highest unemployment rate that we've seen here in Northwest Arkansas ever. 
So that's important to keep in mind that there are a lot of people that lost jobs. You know, in the original April report was 20,000 people lost jobs in Northwest Arkansas. 11,000 of those came from the leisure and hospitality industry alone. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, a good chunk of them are still not employed again. And so when we look at glimmers of hope, you know, originally what we were seeing in early May, the economy was at least as businesses were allowed to open again, we saw spending start climbing again here in Northwest Arkansas, but that quickly turned uh, towards the end of May when the case rate started. You know, we we were fine until about uh, mid to late May here in Northwest Arkansas. We didn't see a huge number of cases until late in May here. And so, you know, the economy was better uh, in early May and then it since then has started declining again. Here in North Arkansas, too, if you just look at how much spending is happening, whether small businesses are open or not, small business revenue, employment at small businesses, all of those were making slight improvements in early May and reversed most of those trends later as case rates started going up. So again, you know, we're suffering, the economy is suffering the consequences of not dealing with the pandemic yeah. more than anything else. And so until we're able to get case rates down here in Northwest Arkansas. We're unlikely to see a significant improvement like uh, we would want to see. But nonetheless, you know, we did see some. So there is some logic to saying, you know, if we get the case rates down, they were down. Businesses reopened in May. People went out and spent more money, but then stopped when case rates went back up. So yeah. Well, I think it'll be interesting. I mean, we'll, we're, we're going to need some time, maybe 14, maybe 21 days to see the effect of this new mask mandate, because I think that's going to have an effect. And I don't know where you stand on the mask, whole mask issue. I, I would just assume, you know what, I'm, I, I'll take one for the team and cover up because I want to see us get through this quicker than, you know, uh, than it taking much longer. So, I mean, we'll ultimately see how that works out for everyone. So, but, yeah, uh, I mean... It's it's the least we could do, really. Yeah. I mean, like, if all the hardships in the world, wearing a mask is not one of them. So. No, 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 it's not. It's not. We are a unique country in that right in that sense because, and again, I could go into a whole another conversation about this, and it's it's hard to to go down that road because I don't want to. I mean, everybody's entitled to their opinion about things, but I just think sometimes as a nation we have to come together. And I I think like I mean, the, it's it's almost like the same way we came together during World War II, right? I mean, as a nation, I know there was a big thing on Rosie the Riveter recently because she just died. And the actual one that was the, the image of, of the, the picture that, we've, that we actually have at Crystal Bridges, shout mm-hmm. out to Crystal Bridges because we have the original Rosie the Riveter. So there is that. And hopefully one day, so actually it, it is open now at a limited capacity. So anybody that does want to go out to Crystal Bridges and you know just get a break from social media, a break from the news and a break from just everything else. Just bring your mask, call up to Crystal Bridges, make an appointment and go down and check out Rosie the Riveter and all the other beautiful artwork that's there for your pleasure. But the bottom line is that it, during World War II, we, it was like an all-in right mentality. And I think that's what we, have, we need to have right now in order to be successful and to get, to get to the other side of this whole pandemic. And I don't know that we fully have that because everybody is you know complaining about rights and all this other stuff. And I get that. But you know, I just think if we could push through and really do this, this whole situation will end a lot sooner than we think. It's just, I mean, the science has proven that, but, you know, we'll ultimately see what happens. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's it. 
Well, Mervin, I really appreciate you taking time to kind of share with me and give me a breakdown. I mean, again, some sobering ideas and some thoughts that you have shared today, which I think will uh, will resonate with our audience, because I think a lot of people just don't have all the answers. And I mean, you know, individuals like yourselves, some of your peers there at the U of A, that this is what you do on a regular basis. I mean, you spend a lot of time processing these ideas, processing these thoughts and, you know, playing what if and and looking at so many different scenarios and how can we ultimately come through this? And I, I you know, I, I, I have to say that, you know, when I think of, uh, we, you know, in business, you do these things called SWOT analysis. And I was talking to somebody the other day and SWOT stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And I'm on a couple of boards and we never had a threat of a pandemic to think about. We just didn't, we didn't throw that up. I mean, we threw some crazy stuff up on the board when we did the exercise, but pandemic, that shut everything down was never one of them. And, and I don't know how many people actually thought about that. It just seems like none of us really considered that. Uh, we haven't had to think about that since about 1918. So yeah. uh, the last time we've had to deal with something this global. So it's clearly something that we will have to think about in the near future. You know, yeah. so e- but we can nerves. build systems to, we can build systems. And we've had several threats before with diseases and we've had much better success in the past dealing with them and isolating them. So we'll need to make sure that we have these early warning systems that were developed and not used, but we'll need to make sure that they're up and running so we can identify these threats early on and uh, nip them in the bud before they become global pandemics. We have to, because like, you know, I was reading, as I was reading, they were kind of going over the other quote unquote pandemics that we've had recently and like, like small, small scale. I'm thinking like foot and mouth. I totally forgot about foot and mouth. I totally forgot about MERS, of course, the swine flu. And so you had all of these and none of them have had the devastating effect that COVID-19 has had. Well, there's uh, certainly more, I guess, infectious in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. It spreads absolutely. a lot easier than several of those other viruses. But, yeah. you know, if we had the early warning system operating, I think we would still be doing a lot better than we are today. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's just hope that the governments and not just ours, but governments around the world properly stock up on, you know, PPE items and paraphernalia so that that we have these should anything else come up. And I know they're in the midst of trying to do that now, but it's almost like a day late dollar short. So we, we need to do better in anticipating what the future holds. So I think we'll well, I think we would be better off as a as a world and as a nation if we do that. So mm-hmm. But Mervin, any last thoughts before we sign off here? I did have one question for you. So before you share your last thought, I, I did want to ask you, as a local here, you went to school here, you've lived here now, you've got your family here. What do you like to do in Northwest Arkansas when, when COVID isn't around and you can kind of go out and do your thing? What do, what do you, what do you, what do you, what's special about Northwest Arkansas that somebody that's not from here, should they should know about? Oh, man, there's a lot of things I like to do around Northwest Arkansas that I'm not doing right now. The one thing that I can do that I'm not currently doing because it's really hot is hiking. Okay. Uh, I think living in an area like this with all the city-type amenities, which I love, bars, restaurants, breweries, theater, and museums, all of those things I love to do. You have access to that and access to really nice hiking trails, really beautiful natural areas in our state uh, and the access to that from here in Northwest Arkansas is actually phenomenal. Yeah. And I really like to hike. And so the access to that is one of my favorite things to do. Something that you could still do is just I'm not hiking when it's 100 degrees outside. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. No, that's good. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I, I bike a lot and I walk a lot and um, I get out on the greenway and I got to tell you, I'm usually out there by 6.30 or 7 at the latest because this time of year, it's just after 8 o'clock, it's just unbearable. So what's your favorite restaurant? Whew. Uh, I don't know that I could pick one really. I mean, it depends. Uh, Do you have a go-to, one that you frequent a lot? I, I mean, my... I have a couple of go-tos and, uh, well, Cafe Rue Orleans is really close to me. Marty, Marty is, is, uh, is a lot of my business. So, yeah. And the thing I like about Marty is, um, she actually works with a lot of local chefs to kind of help them along. She's kind of like the chef whisperer. She's actually even helped my friend, Nate Walls, who is, who has a company called secondhand smoke. He's been on Mm -hmm. this podcast. Nate's feeding a lot of food insecure people. I'm working with him to help feed food insecure people. And the thing that I, I realized that Maudie did for him recently was she actually opened up one of her storage places and just gave him a bunch of cooking equipment. Mm-hmm. And that's just the kind of person that she is. I yeah. don't know her personally. I mean, I've run into her a few times, but I would encourage anyone, whenever Maudie's cooking any, if you want some New Orleans cuisine, if you want some, you know, crawfish etouffee or anything like that, you need to check out Cafe Rue Arlene's. And this is just a shout out to them because Marty's such good people. But mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. That is a great place to check out. So, well, those are, those are some good choices. I always have a problem recommending a single restaurant because I know a bunch of restaurateurs and I don't want to piss anybody off by, by, right. by mentioning one over the other. It's hard. So You tell me what you want to eat and I might give you some recommendations. Right, right, I, right. I, I yeah. can't pick just one. Yeah, no, I know. It is, it is very difficult. But that's the other thing I like about Northwest Arkansas is that we have such a, people don't realize we have such a blend of great food. And I think the A Street Market up in Bentonville is a microcosm of what we have here in Northwest Arkansas. Would you agree? I think so. Yeah. It's certainly a phenomenal thing. And I think I'd hope to see more of those types of markets in other cities around here too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, man, thank you so much for, for just sharing a couple of words of wisdom and giving us some insight into your thinking. And we really, really appreciate it. If, if anybody wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Please shoot me an email. What's your email address? It's uh, mjebaraj at walton.uark.edu. Okay, perfect. I will put that in the show notes and that way people can can check that out and they can also see it in the um in the transcript that we will put out because I know people read transcripts, right? So, yep, yeah, so so yeah, so they can definitely do that and we'll make sure that people can reach out to you and kind of connect with you if they want to thank you for being on the podcast or just ask you a simple question. So don't overburden him, folks, because he's got work to do. But again, Mervin, thank you so, so much for being on the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. I and the tribe of I Am Northwest Arkansas really appreciates having you on and uh, appreciate you sharing uh, of your time and your wisdom. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Okay, great. Well, folks, there you have it. Another episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas. It's so exciting to have individuals like Mervin on the show. And, and I hope you got a lot out of this because that's one of the reasons why I do this podcast because I want to learn something new. And I can say that I can say unequivocally, Every guest that I've had on this podcast, I have learned something new by having them as a guest, by interviewing them, by having them open up and share their experiences. So I hope you got something out of this. I hope there's even one little nugget or truism that you took away from this particular episode. And uh, we'd love to know about that. You can leave us a message in the comment section. As always, you can subscribe to the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast wherever you find great podcasts. Obviously, the main ones, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Google Play, 
There's so many places to get this. And we're now on iHeartRadio. Pandora is another location where you can listen to the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. And as I always say, if you have a smart speaker like Alexa, you can say, hey, Alexa, play the latest episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas. And Alexa will do just that. So I really want to encourage you to listen to us wherever you prefer to listen to your podcast. We really appreciate you. I've shared some uh, reviews that we've gotten recently. So we love reviews. We love five-star ratings. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Let us know what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, what we could improve upon. And uh, we'll certainly take that to heart as we go out, endeavor to find more great people like Mervin to bring on the podcast and talk about a wide variety of things. Remember, we focus on the intersection of business, culture, entrepreneurship, and life here in the Ozarks. And that's all I have for you this week. And we come out every Monday at 12 noon. So I will see you next week. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas. Check us out each and every week, available anywhere that great podcasts can be found. For show notes or more information on becoming a guest, visit IamNorthwestArkansas.com. We'll see you next week on I Am Northwest Arkansas.